1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Um, hello, everybody. This is Shu Wang. Welcome back to the podcast of Disability Study Channel on New Book Network. So today, I'm very happy to invite Dr. Dubourg to join us and talk about her newest book, titled um, Disabled Cler- Sorry, Cler- Clerics in the Late Middle Ages. So now... Dr. Dubourg, could you please briefly introduce yourself and your research to us?
1: Yes. Uh, hello everybody and hello Shu. Uh, thank you very much for having me today. Uh, my name is Ninon Dubourg. Uh, I am a 30-plus years old French researcher. I'm a bit of a redhead with long hair and straight bangs and gold rimmed glasses. Uh, Disabled Clerics in the Late Middle Ages is my first book. Uh, To say a little more about me, I have defended my PhD at the University of Paris-Cité in France in 2019. In this work, I argued that the petitions received and the letters sent by the papal chancery between the 12th and 14th century attest the recognition of physical or mental impairment by the papacy. Those documents acknowledge the existence of a disability and allow the supplicant to adapt his or her mission of clerics or Christian according to his or her abilities, as they lie as a boundary between the institutional world and practical documents. I am now a postdoctoral Fellow funded by the FRS, FRS, FNRS, and hosted in the unit research Transition within the University of Liège in Belgium. My current project is entitled "Disrael: Disabled People's Religious Experiences in Western Europe During the Late Middle Ages, from the 12th to the 15th century. It aims to discern the development of a truly personalized worship forms and religious experiences for disabled people in the more general rise of an individualistic lay religiosity in the late Middle Ages. Our arcs that we can see it through accommodations given by the Vatican, which recognized the disability in the enactment of Christian rites. Then I wrote the books based on those uh, researches.
0: Um, Dr. Duboga, thank you so much for your introduction again. So, then I want to invite you to talk about the reason why you're interested in the field, I mean, disability studies.
1: Mm, yeah, thank you for the question. My interests, uh, in fact, lay in my family heritage, uh, as my mother, grandmother, and aunts all worked in specialized institutions. Uh, It all comes from my aunt Joelle who had Down syndrome and from a friendship that pushed me to question myself about disability from my earliest childhood. I think that at that time I did not conceive disability as a limitation of activity or restriction of participation in society as defined by French law since 2005. I only became aware of the social meaning of disability when I worked with disabled people in 2008 during an adapted vacation camp uh, and from 2010 to 2012 to accompany students during their courses at the university. On another hand, my interest in history, while I wanted to study archaeology at first, pushed me to question myself about the life of disabled people in ancient times of which the medieval period was my preference. I then discovered the book written in 2006 by Irina Metzler entitled Disability in Medieval Europe Thinking about Physical Impairment in the High Middle Ages, which was the first book entirely devoted to the subject. It then reinforced my belief that it was possible to study this social and cultural phenomenon during the Middle Ages. And then I love to work on disability, because it questioned blurry and kind of borderline situation during the medieval period. The topic of disabled clerics is particularly interesting because there is a negotiation to determine the suitability, with air uh, quotes, uh, of the clerics, during which all parties must explain the relevant circumstances and discuss to try to accommodate to the best. This negotiation around what could be accepted or what could not be accepted in various contexts and by various actors is what what interests me the most. Uh, The period under consideration in the book offers a privileged laboratory to observe the implementation of changes in the definition of disability that will participate to allow the emergence of this modern concept in the 20th century. Indeed, the period from the 12th to the 14th century marks the formation, the apogee, and the decline of the Pontifical Monarchy that sees this question. Then, I began with the reign of the Pope, Pascal II, elected at the beginning of the 12th century during the Investiture controversy. This Pope was the first to attempt to resolve the conflicts between him and the antipopes appointed by the Emperor Henry IV. And I ended with the pontificate of Gregory XI, practically 300 years later, which signed the return of the papacy in Rome, but also the beginning of the great Western schism, which divided Christian into two factions for about 40 years, causing problems of legitimation, of course, but also a colossal diplomatic production. And we know that during the 12th, 13th, and 14th centuries, the ecclesiastical institution holds the spiritual as well as the temporal supremacy over all Christendom. I then argue that it played a preponderant role in the definition of impairment and disability. The public power that allowed it to settle multiple clerical or religious problems through epistolary exchanges spread through Europe was linked to its power of grace, the prerogative of the greatest monarch in the medieval era used to soften the rules. Defining disability is a political act, an act of government, in my opinion. In my work, I try to show how, in the last centuries of the medieval period, the pontifical institution was able to define and then to recognize disability through its answer to petition. Then, that is the idea of various definition of what is a disability and the one that made in relation to an institution that was of particular interest for me.
0: Okay, Dr Duak thank, Duak, thank you so much again for both your sharing of your own experience and your discussion on the definitions of disability again. So then I want to invite you to discuss the legal origin of the prohibition against impaired clerics in the Middle East.
1: Well, uh, the, the question of the legal origin of the prohibition against impaired clerics is particularly interesting because the church created canon law that contains several types of defects that prohibit clerics from entering orders. These irregularities qualify situations when the person is not suitable. For example, a bastard postulant is accused of birth defects. A supplicant who is too young is guilty of a defect of age. A supplicant suffering from a physical or mental impairment is judged as having a defect of body or mind from the 5th to the 20th century, those physical or mental defects caused an irregularity and prevented a person who had not obtained grace from joining the clerical state or a cleric from maintaining ecclesiastical status. The notion of physical or mental defect was constantly being developed between its origin and the 13th century, during which canon law concretized its constitution thanks to the decree of Gratian and the decretals of Gregory IX. Notably, in those texts, the irregularity of the defect of body or defect of mind is effective when an impairment prevents a cleric from exercising ecclesiastical function correctly. This irregularity is a perpetual disqualification that forbids someone to receive order and the oblate to become monk or nun. In the same way, When the cleric became impaired after his ordination and cannot perform certain tasks anymore, he is therefore declared irregular. The term irregular comes from the lists or canons in which the clerics ordained under the name of regularists are listed from the 11th century onwards. Those clerics, prohibited from practicing because of a disability, must be removed from these lists and were thus called irregulars. These examples mobilized in canon law reflect only definitive situations as motivation, mutilation, and leprosy. They illustrate a difference between temporary illnesses called impediments and conditions that create irregularities in the long time that can be compared with disabilities. Moreover, medieval jurists distinguished two types of irregularity in the defect of body and mind. One, total, and the other, partial. The total irregularity makes it impossible to exercise the ecclesiastical functions. It affects, for example, a bishop who, with a mutilated tongue, could not talk and, for example, could not say mass. Partial irregularity, on the other hand, reduces the scope of action of clerics according to their abilities. Thus, a blind bishop can continue to confess a laity, but cannot no longer read the sacred texts to say mass. We can think in view of canon law that impaired people were certainly discouraged from applying or for entering the clergy. Indeed, the reception of orders and tonsure crystallizes almost all the debates compiled in canon law, defect of body or mind representing only a part of them. So in concrete terms, Irregularity for defects of body or mind take two forms. On the one hand, the pontifical institution wants clerics to possess certain physical or mental aptitudes, so that they are capable of fulfilling their duties. The mute, the deaf, and the blind have been excluded from the priesthood since the first canonical texts on the basis of capacity. Indeed, they cannot read aloud and thus exercise the office properly. For example, in the 5th century, Ammonius mutilated his here to avoid becoming a bishop and threatened to cut off his tongue to prevent him from speaking if his electors tried to force him to do so again. On the other hand, the pontifical institution seeks to verify the claritas of the cleric. That means that it had to monitor that his incapacities do not devalue the image of the church first in the context of divine service since it decrees that ordinance must be perfect to say mass and distribute the sacraments, and secondly in the representation of the impaired people we must not cause scandal among the parishioners. Then, medieval disability of clerics must not only be understood from the perspective of the impersonator's experience, he or she is capable of, but also be seen from the perspective of the Christian faithful attending the service to be fully, fully understood. These apprehensions are formed around the impurity of the administrator, the visibility and publicity of the impairment, and not the abilities as before. In these cases, the physical imperfection of the priests risks affecting the sacredness of the places of worship and degrading the image of the institution among the faithful. Moreover, the Pontifical Institution also asked to assess the way in which the disability occurred. In the petition, the supplicant’ objective was to show that his imperfection was not related to a moral impurity, that is that he was not responsible for his impairment. The clerics must represent must present the incident that rendered him impaired in such a way as to appear irresponsible in order to prove his ir- irregularity, whether for good reason, for by a doctor, for example, to avoid an illness, or because of the fault of another person, as in war, for example. Thus, it appears that the papal grace was only granted when the intention of the cleric and the reason for his act were known to the Chancery or excused by certain extenuating circumstances, such as self-defense and ignorance of the law at the end this legal definition allows the pontifical Chancery to automate the treatment of the petition it received and to classify the petitioners even if it did not necessarily name the juridical status to which it refers then the supplications sent to the popes and the papal letters sent in answer Help to define disability as a juridical object since they contribute to the legal elaboration of the defect of body and mind. This institutional construct of impairment allows the Apostolic See to set a norm on bodies in order to distinguish the functional body from the abnormal one. The Chancery thus delineated a physical standard in which any different body was considered defective, unsuitable. The latter study implements the prerogative of canon law and the recommendation of the numerous decrees issued. They even go beyond these legislations since they allow the, their softening. They testify to the use of the legal category of defect of body or mind by the chancery to take into account the physical and social consequences of impairment. It is clear that incapacity are a canonical irregularity is a shifting concept as disability. It varied according to the situation faced by the impaired people and the consequences of his or her unsuitability. In fact, if the physical or mental incapacity does not influence the capacity and function of the person, it did not represent a defect, a disability. Mobilizing this object, the Chancery decided whether the impairments constitute a defect or not, that is, a disability or not. It can then recognize the disability through the petition process. It is this legal recognition that the petitioner thought to acquire through their speeches.
0: So, Dr. Dubois, thanks for your um, discussion and answer again. So, next question, I want to invite you to talk about how the supplicants define their impairments through dialogue with the Papal Chancery in the petition process.
1: Yeah, thank you for this question. Uh, because the disabled clerics could write to the Papal Chancery in order to soften those prohibitions according to certain conditions. That means that they are to tell something about their physical or mortal situation in their petitions. Those petitions express the request on the impaired supplicants to the chancery and reflect their desire to maintain a social utility. In those letters, they are to negotiate their graces by consciously taking part in the institutional game, whether they were its subjects or victims. They had an active role in the relations of power not necessarily to free themselves from them, but to benefit from a margin of manoeuvre called agency. Supplications represented a single administrative channel through which such negotiations could take place. On the other side, the Pontifical Chancery was responsible was responsible for papal correspondence and gained autonomy as the institution strengthened its administration during the 12th, 13th, and 13th century. It was responsible for granting graces as the gracious policy was developed before the second half of the 12th century and became fully effective in the 13th century. The letters it issued then constitute a formal guide for the daily activity of the clergy to whom they were addressed. Because of their stylistic codification and their r- juridical value, letters could become a legal tool to circumvent the norm in the end of the addresses, bringing the voice of the pontifical institution to a very local level. This type of correspondence undoubtedly reinforced the essence of the power of the popes based on a centralized administration where everything was recorded. As the discursive material contained in papa letters was based on the information supplied in petitions, the Chancery recapitulated petitioners' own testimony in order to drive a suitable epistolary text for the official pontifical grace. This entails supplications for mild transformation, a process through which the discourses were standardized and normalized. Notwithstanding such modifications, these documents allow readers to access the authentic experiences of impaired clerics through discursive analysis. Moreover, supplicants were active participants in the petition process. They shrewdly pursued discursive strategy to present their impairment to the chancery in the most persuasive way, and thereby maximized the chances of their success. In that context, the way of presenting themselves in order to appear disabled was of crucial significance. To do so, supplicants tend to present their impairments and its cause in vague terms. The most commonly used terminology is polysemous, infirmitas, debilitas, and imbecilitas. The meaning of these Latin terms is slippery, They all denote impairment, weakness, inability to perform certain action, and or a disease. By contrast, supplicants were much more forthcoming about their lived experiences of disability, the way in which their physical and or mental condition affected their functioning in the world. Petitioners could not invent things out of the world cloth, however, nor could they widely exaggerate, their accounts are to be credible and their requests proportionate in order to achieve their goals. The choice of vocabulary was of vital importance both for the petitioner and the chancery. The former had to ensure that his condition and its effect were properly understood. The latter rendered its judgment in large part based on the avowed consequences of impairment as disclosed by the petitioner. Ultimately, narratives legitimize the inclusion or exclusion of clerics from the ecclesiastical body. The analysis of my corpus, made of 142 petitions from the 14th century and 743 letters from the 13th and 14th century, reveals that the majority of supplicants in the corpus were disabled by bodily weaknesses, both congenital and acquired, that is 65% of my corpus. I gather here under the terminology of physical weaknesses indefined indefin- infirmities and diseases in order to respect the imprecision of medieval terms. The next most frequent cause of disability were age-related incapacity, that is 12%, and sensory impairments, both congenital and acquired, that is 10%. The remainder are ascribed to mutilations, such as limb loss, that is 6%, physical impairments, such as mobility limiting conditions, both congenital and acquired, that is also 5%, leprosy, 1%, and mental weaknesses, both congenital and acquired, that is also one percent. Then in my analysis, disability as a category includes, for example, chronically ill people and people with static physical, mental, and sensory impairments. Whilst acknowledging the difference in life experiences is of course key, chronic illness was viewed as a kind of impairment as it is today. It seems relevant, then, to include some illnesses in the analysis of premodern disability, if only because of the ambiguity of terminology in the period. And also in the petition and papal letters, the personal and the institutional are inseparable. Those documents contain diverse accounts of impairments, with requests varying according to the specificities of a given cleric circumstances. Such heterogeneity necessitated a flexible institutional response. Church authorities' treatment of impaired clerics and the irregularities generated by their condition was as variable as the cleric's own experiences. The chancery was far more interested in the practical consequences of impairment, petitioners' disability, than forensic examination of its physical or mental cause, and the corpus indicates that for the church two principal categories of impairment suffice for administrative purposes. The first apply to clerics with facial and/or any bodily disfigurement who requests an entrance to the major order or other promotion. For this group. Impairment was grounded in the notion of irregularity. Chronically ill and/or elderly clerics seeking accommodation fell into a second category. Petitioners of this kind requested the provision of additional assistance for their current role or the permission to resign their office outright, all whilst retaining their benefices.
0: Okay, thank you so much for your answer and your discussion of the I won't say the definition, and the, I won't say categorization or the classification of the disabilities in a specific historical context. So, for the next question, I would like to invite you to talk about the test utilized by the church to determine disability.
1: Thank you for the question. Uh, this is a very good one, because the recognition of disability is subject to verification of physical or mental conformity to the expected standards. The institution must define the notion of idoneity, of suitability, insofar as it's used to delimit the characteristics of a good cleric. The word suitability can be used when an individual conforms to set criteria as established by an order, a community, even a single monastery. The disability experienced by impaired individuals resulted in the creation of a state different from that of a mind recognized as healthy or suitable, encompassing to those with defects of body or mind who were not allowed to enter or remain in the clergy. As we said before, physical or and mental perfection are indispensable for access to the priesthood. When a person is afflicted by a bodily or mental defect, he is not allowed to enter the order or to obtain the tonsure. Then, a first examination was set up to to enter the orders. It took place at the bishopric level for all clerics. This control always took place in the same way. First, an inquiry was made of the relatives of the future ordained to gather information about him before he presented himself before the bishop. Next, the postulant must provide letters of recommendation, written by other ecclesiastical authorities who supported the application. However, these letters were not sufficient to examine the candidate according to canon law. In fact, the man must then be declared suitable by the bishop through inspection a few days before the ordination ceremony. These examinations due to the character, qualifications and knowledge of the aspirant. In non-contentious cases, the candidate received of benefit. But in contentious cases, the supplicant needed a pontifical grace to enter the orders. Is then had to undergo a second examination conducted by the chancery, which is not well known. This examination, organized by persons appointed by the apostolic see, assessed reading and singing, unless a person has graduated from a university. Indeed, such clerics could be extremely useful for the church, and they often possessed rare and sought-after capacities. Then, in their rhetorics, disabled supplicants thought to market themselves in terms of their aptitudes according to the courier ongoing needs and expectations. Educational excellence was a highly desirable recruitment criterion in the eyes of the ecclesiastical institutions, and the rigorous entrance examinations to ensure that only the most competent individuals were hired. It was the same for the regular clerics, when they entered the monastery as novices and ultimately made their vows. According to the pontifical letters, some impaired clerics could no longer follow the rules to which they were subject, nor work for the monasteries as they were supposed to do. The petitions and pontifical letters additionally testify to the supreme importance of suitability when accepting monks and nuns into an order. This imperative was found in the rules of community lives and in the various prescriptions followed by each order, even by each monastery, and this was the case for male and female entrants alike. In some cases that I detailed in the book, there were even restricted councils composed of mature and wise men that evaluated the morals and knowledge of the applicants, and had to see if the candidate was not hiding any infirmity or illness that would prevent him or her from wearing the monastic habit. The extreme control exercised by the papacy was not limited to the church lower ranks, but rather intensified for appointments to higher orders. These examinations were then repeated in ever greater detail as the time of promotions, especially for the positions of priests, before because they could preach and give the sacraments. As with any ecclesiastical promotion, the entrance exam for major orders were carried out by the bishop or his delegate. However, examiners in these cases had to be even more rigorous when it came to the ordination of a person for benefits with care of the South in litigious cases, the popes had to intervene in order to guarantee suitable clerics for the laity. And it was even more reinforced in cases of Bishop and abbot's promotions. They had to go to the Roman or Avignonese curia and pay tribute to the popes, alongside undergoing another assessment of their skill and physical suitability to their new role one which came with substantially increased visibility and responsibility so the obligation for the petitioner to receive a grace in order to be able to fulfill his or her job allows the pontifical institution to control the ordained person and their qualities then the universal application of legis- legislation Allowed the ecclesiastical institution to standardize practices across the entire church, thereby solidifying its centralized authority. Moreover, by examining the bishop who themselves evaluated all postulants to the clergy, the Curia ensured that it only has a minimum of known members with bodily or mental irregularities who were otherwise suitable. And in these courses, Recognized disabled clerics could have the right to some accommodations.
0: So, thank you so much again for your answer and your discussion about disability in the late middle age. So, my following question will involve the consequence of the failure of such disability tests and of the clerics' disclosures of impairment in petitions.
1: Well... As we only have access to accepted pontifical graces, the consequences are mainly positive ones. As this process of petitioning created a metaphorical place conducive to negotiation, where disabled clerics could disclose their physical and or mental difficulties to advocate for themselves, they could request accommodation from the church. Those accommodations could take three main forms according to the situation and the environment. Firstly, they could ask for the nomination of an assistant, called a coadjutor. Where a secular or regular cleric wished to remain in charge, the pontifical institution could relieve him or her of the tasks they cannot longer perform in order to ensure the daily fulfillment of pastoral and administrative duties. Consequently, it authorized a disabled disabled cleric to hire or directly employ an assistant to carry out certain well-defined tasks in the name of the public good. Then, the Pope could ensure that the office became suitable for the impaired supplicants and their abilities so that they could retain some of their functions. On the other hand, the apostolic see tried to prevent the general ruin of the church that disabled clerics could cause, mainly because of their spiritual function of preaching and giving the sacraments, but also sometimes because of their spiritual function, uh, temporal function, sorry, of managing the church's goods. Indeed, the assistant main task was to take care of the cure of the souls, In this case, he must receive a part of the benefit he was taking care of in order to be able to live comfortably. At the end, assistants may sometimes succeed the individuals they replaced upon their death or resignation. The electors of the bishop or the popes often prefer to elect the assistant who was legally managing the benefits rather than appoint a new person since the one chosen as coadjutor was usually the most capable and knowledgeable about local practices, the assistant replaced the new retiree with the aim of facilitating the transfer of the office so that the benefits do not suffer, thus creating a power transfer scheme. Secondly, petitioners might have asked for the softening of monastic rules grants of pontifical grace offered something of a loophole to the harsh monastic rules. Petitioners could receive permissions to contravene religious vows, including tooth mandating and closure, in case in which, as Thomas Aquina put it, the thing would become absolutely bad or useless. But only the church highest authority, the popes, could type up the question of breaking such vows. Impairment, old age or illness could provide a legitimate rationale for breaking vows including enclosure, if the action was undertaken in order to avoid generating scandal or to remove the disabled supplicant from a dangerous situation. Thus, the letters could relax the rules concerning the harsh monastic lifestyle around deprivation confinement, and communal living that could indeed lead to physical and mental impairments. As a practical measure, institutions had to provide accommodations for community members' physical weakness to facilitate the smooth running of the facility, whilst also making space for monks and nuns with weaker health. While some monastic rules and instructions issued by the church councils seals routinely emphasized the need to lighten the workload allocated to weak and or sick monks and nuns, the pontifical letters did go further to allow prohibited things, as eating in the cells outside of the refectory, or as bringing in a doctor to look after a sick brother or sister, or as having several servants, for example. Pontifical letters sometimes even allow the transgression of the enclosure by allowing monks and nuns to relocate from their monastery or convent to another and even to change of religious order altogether, notably for reason of earth or capacity. Thirdly, The letters could exempt clerics from some professional obligation because of mobility issues. On one hand, physical disability also had an impact on the pastoral function of priests, insofar as they had to travel to perform various ecclesiastical tasks. Indeed, the secular clerics must forceful uh, remain able to come and go with their own benefits. On another end, if they were bishop, abbot, priors, etc, the office obliged them to visit them uh, their diocese or its dependencies, and to go to ecclesiastical gatherings. Finally, clerics might be asked to travel long distances to carry out diplomatic missions or to respond to a summon to the Apostolic See. In all those cases, papal letters indicate that secular and regular clerics with reduced mobility could sometimes be exempted by the chancery from certain theoretically obligatory trips. In a lot of cases, the pope delegated certain powers to the recipient of the letters, who were not independent actors, but rather traditional relays of pontifical authorities. Deputized by the papacy, these executors, mainly bishops and abbots, ensured that edicts issued at the top of the ecclesiastical hierarchy flowed down to and were respected at the local level. They had to ensure that the measures being sanctioned were justified, making it clear that all exemptions were void if the supplicant had lied. The objective here was to prevent any grace being issued as a result of fraudulent appeals that also functioned as control mechanism more generally to specify restriction to pontifical sentences or issue conditions on it. But that is of course in the impaired clerics wanted to stay in the clergy.
0: So thank you so much for your question, uh, for your answer and discussion again. So now let's switch to our last question today. It's about the fate of disabled men who were less fortunate; those who had to leave the clergy entirely, either of their own, well, I mean, Welsh, Welsh, Welsh or due to the severity of their disability.
1: Thank you, because this is true that poor health or impairment sometimes forced clerics to resign from their positions as they became unable to perform their duties. Resignations due to physical or mental disability are found in a large number among the clergy, especially in the 13th century, when 58% of supplicants stipulated such impairment as a motivator for their departure. Stringingly, this figure declined sharply in the following century, as only less than 15% of the clerics asked to leave the clergy. This dropped tallies with the fact that the concern of ecclesiastical authorities were broadening during the 14th century, a period in which the century dealt with fewer clerical matters overall and therefore processed fewer renunciations and supplication and papal letters testify to these voluntarily departures due to physical or mental incapacity. Letters who subject the resignation of the clerics are called letters of revocation. They were used to withdraw the power that the Pope had previously entrusted to these clerics. The latter were not deposed or removed, but were allowed to abandon their function. These clerics, for example, asked to leave the priesthood because they were likely to cause a scandal because of their defect of body and mind. In these cases, the church took care of the older and weaker clerics. Canon law states that no one can be appointed in the place of a bishop even if the latter become ill and useless if he does not ask for his resignation itself. The various supplicants who appeal to the popes to resign their office are all at the top of the ecclesiastical hierarchy. The minor ecclesiastics do not indeed have to address the pope to withdraw from their function, but only to their own hierarchy. The letter then concerns abbots, priors, rectors, bishops, and archbishops. Following the reign of Innocent III at the beginning of the 13th century, the Pope's right of review was affirmed, and it became mandatory to receive a missive of grace in which the cleric or his superior detail a legitimate reason to resign. The reasons given were mainly related to old age and or explicitly permanent conditions such as blindness, paralysis, incurable diseases, etc. By looking at the texts of the letters, it seems that all supplicants seeking to resign were over 60 years old, which correspond to an age that is familiar to us. The resignation could be presented positively because it prevents the ruin of all the good of the ecclesiastical affairs, but it can also be presented negatively when the person was no longer able to manage his benefits and the ruin has already begun. In all cases, retirees could benefit from a financial compensation to avoid precariousness. This allowance was explicitly granted in only about half of the cases. The sum of money suggested by the Chancery was to allow the person to live without lacking anything. The amount varies, but it seems to be about one-third of the salary previously held. These elderly or impaired clerics became pensioners whose existence is attested as early as the 13th century. In these cases, they use their allowance to cover their expenses until their death, since they lost the income from their benefits when they resigned. On the other hand, the poorest clerics who were already earning little money were sometimes bought out of their pension by patrons or entered an hospital or a monastery in order to continue to live comfortably. In principle, all clergymen were to receive a pension so as not to tarnish the dignity of the office they had previously held, following the same argument as the construction of special hospices for former clerics. Indeed, in case they lost their rank or if their pension was not sufficient, some clerics went to live in hospices or private private houses put at their disposal until the last days. The papal institutions sometimes devoted some effort to specialized institutions for impaired clerics or into condition-specific hospitals like leprosaria for leprous clerics or hostel of God for the blind clerics, for example, adapting the grace to an individual's unique circumstances but clerics could also enter a monastery or remain there if they were already living in community, because it was supposed to be a good place to finish your life. However, as we have seen, many religious orders firmly stipulate that old age impairment or illness may prevent an applicant from being accepted, as he may not be able to withstand the rigors of monastic life. However, it was possible for some secular clerics to enter a convent, sometimes even in crucial positions, through papal letters, whilst abbots were simply demoted as monks in their own communities or in a neighbourhood convent. But, and it is what is interesting, the papal chancery showed a genuine interest in providing care to those in need, including impaired clerics, as part of his overreaching remit of managing medieval society. This is, I think, what I'm trying to show in the book. The petitions received and the letter issued by the papal chancery between the 12th and the 14th century attest to the recognition of disability by the pontifical institution. They record the existence of supplicants' physical or mental impairment and on a case-by-case case basis, authorized petitioners to adapt their duties both as clerics and as Christians according to their abilities.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for your coming to our. I mean for first thing, I will say I will, I will appreciate you answer to my last question. And and also I will appreciate your talk today. Fantastic book talk. So at the end of our. I mean, podcast the episode today. I want to recommend the, um, this book, "Disabled Clerics in the Late Middle Ages," to everybody with interest in the history of disability, with interest in the history of the church, with the interest in the history of the Middle Ages. Which is, I want to say, the book is one of the best book about the topic of a disability. In, in, I mean, in know, medieval, late medieval church. So thank you so much. You. See you soon.
1: Thank you very much, Sue. And thank you for having me today.